0: But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Okay, but what if you did want to get more coffee into your life? Well, good news for you, folks. We have a brand new sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show. It is one run-your-mouth coffee. Free speech. Never tasted so good. The hope is that the delicious roast-to-order coffee provides you with the fuel, yes, you need to stand up to censorship and proudly run your mouth with amazing coffee to help you truly speak freely from 12 ounce bags up to two pounds bags all of the coffee from the amazing run your mouth coffee is roasted to order after roasting delivery It takes around two to five days, meaning that you will receive fresh roasted coffee made for you at peak flavor. And all coffee varieties are available both in ground and whole bean. From Espresso Yourself, Speak Freely, Mind Changer, Pumpkin Persuasion, and Rebellion Beans run your mouth coffee has some delicious coffee just in store for you. And folks, if you are a listener of The Brian Nichols Show, you can use... Code Nichols at checkout and get 10% off your order. So, head over to Run Your Mouth Coffee. Make sure you use code Nichols at checkout. Get 10% off your order and run your mouth today. Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on. And our
1: typical lineup includes, like, homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. (laughs)
0: Alright folks, it's time. 15 days to slow the spread. That's what we were told, but guess what? One year later, and we have seen America go through some absolutely tumultuous economic downturns as the government stepped in time and time and again, shooting itself in the foot when it was trying to help, when all the time the experts, the real experts were out there saying... Listen, government, stay out of the way. Don't put these mandatory lockdowns on society. Don't do this authoritarian approach in response to a virus. And the experts, the real experts have been out there saying this from the beginning. And now, as we're approaching one year anniversary of our 15 days to slow the spread, Those pro-lockdown voices are becoming more and more silent, as is becoming widely and resoundingly accepted that the lockdowns did nothing to actually help curtail the COVID-19 pandemic. And rather, it was voluntary actions by those individuals in the marketplace from free movement to voluntarily going out, wearing masks, social distancing, and so forth. That was the approach that was the most effective. And here on today's episode of The Brian Nichols Show, we have four amazing episodes that we had, with, starting with Dan Mitchell, Matt Kibbe, Jeffrey Tucker, and Nick Hudson, discussing four awesome episodes and highlights from said episodes over the past year, where we discussed just that. What was the expected impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns on society. Would it be worse than what we are experiencing from that of the COVID-19 virus deaths? Well, I think we're starting to see the long-term uh, consequences are starting to be realized. And uh, this is a great episode, folks, to make sure we're, we're showing and setting the record straight. We were on the right side of history here. And, and this definitive episode is a great tool to have in uh, your back pocket. Anytime you have the naysayers, uh, dare question and doubt um, that yes Liberty is in fact the best option going forward so that being said onto the show our covid highlight 15 days to slow the spread one year anniversary special here on the Brian Nickel show. I have seen this this two schools of thought. Either A, you want people to be able to go into the workplace if they are not at risk, or if they are at the very least lowest risk categories to be able to still keep things going. The other camp saying, don't you care about people's lives? Don't you care about the people who are sick?
2: The challenge, of course, with the caveat that there's still a lot we don't know about the disease, uh, but the challenge that we face is that both sides have a lot of truth. Uh, There's no question if you lock down the economy, maintain very strong social distancing, uh, you can reduce the spread of the disease. On the other hand, when you do that, you're imposing tremendous damage on the economy. Uh, A lot of it, very likely, will be permanent damage. Uh, And and frankly, some of it is going to be totally independent of government, because even if state governments weren't ordering these uh, lockdowns and shutdowns, uh, you still would have lots of people uh, not going out and shopping, not going out and socializing. Uh, and frankly, even if we think about what's going to be happening, say four months from now, uh, will people be going to movie theaters? Will they be uh, going to restaurants? Uh, will they be going on cruise ships? So I suspect that there are some permanent changes uh, to our economy and to our culture that uh, that are Simply because the of the disease, and will have nothing to do with what the government is doing today. Now, everyone is talking about flattening the curve. What is the what is the goal of flattening the curve? It's to reduce the rate of new infections. Why? Well, at least when that originally came out, it was to make sure that the capacity of the healthcare system wasn't overwhelmed. If there were, say, you know, 500 ventilators. In a metropolitan region, you didn't want a thousand critically ill patients who needed ventilators. And so the idea was, oh my God, this is going to spread. So many people are going to get it. We have to at least slow down the pace of them getting it. So we don't have these these, uh, horrible triage type decisions being made where, okay, this person's 83 years old and not very healthy. So we're just going to let them die in a hallway in the hospital. Uh, And in effect, what is being done Uh, with those kinds of decisions is we're saying, well, we're going to make everyone poorer to to save some lives. And that's a judgment call. Uh, Now, how many lives do you save? I mean, in theory, you could save lives by banning the personal automobile or setting speed limits at five miles an hour. We don't do those things because we know it simply doesn't make sense. We are now discussing trade-offs. What are we willing to
0: risk and and what is the reward? All things in life, I would dare say, are based in some form of economics, and in this case, it's supply and demand. Is there a a sub, like a, a study or something that we can look back to and say, listen, we can objectively state that per what? Well, let's just say per per percent of unemployment rate, you can on average see X number of of people. Who are negatively impacted with their lives, you know, in more terms of mortality? Is that something that we can say? Listen, this is something we need. To, we need to tangibly take as as real information and and be concerned with, or is this something that we're kind of, we're, unfortunately, we're stuck in talking in abstract?
2: There is real world evidence. It's uh, actually used all the time in the legal system and the regulatory analysis apparatus of the government, uh, uh, where there's very strong data on the health of a society in terms of longevity, average lifespans, and the prosperity of a society. Simply stated, people in rich countries, all other things being equal, live longer than people in poor countries. You, if, if you're going to choose where to be born in the world, you don't want to be born, say, in South Sudan. Uh, you want to be born in a rich Western society because your lifespan uh, will be much longer because you're in a healthier society uh, because of all the all the things that are made possible by prosperity, uh, whether you're talking about healthcare, infrastructure, the quality of life. Uh, So there is this trade off and there's all sorts of analysis and studies about, you know, how much should you spend to try to save one life? And sometimes they measure it in terms of things like quality life years. I mean, it all gets very technical and and probably probably very boring, but it does happen. We do measure these things Courts measure them when they're looking at, uh, mm-hmm. at legal issues. Uh, regulatory agencies look at it. Uh, I just gave the example before about you know how much money do you want to spend uh, for a policy that would save one life? Well, right. in some cases, like mandating seatbelts, that actually by a, by a traditional cost-benefit analysis, that saves lots of lives and it's very worth it because the cost of installing the seatbelts is so low. Whereas the absurd example I gave you earlier about you know banning private automobiles or requiring five-mile-an-hour speed limits, we instantly and naturally reject that because it's so preposterous. But given that we have, what, 30,000 or something fatalities on the roads every year, well – what what are you? You don't you want people to die? Why don't you want five mile an hour speed limits? So so yes, these trade offs get made, and and one of the big trade offs, at least especially in the long run, and this is why I, I in the title of my column uh, I specified uh, that there's only a temporary trade off because in the long run the the correlation between the wealth of a society and the health of a society is very strong. In the short run, though. We are dealing with this painful trade-off because of the coronavirus, in part because we just don't know the answers on some things. And what's frustrating to sort of get me back to one of my favorite topics, which is criticizing ineffective and incompetent government, it would be great if we were more like some of these East Asian economies uh, that were more decentralized and more market-driven in terms of testing and, and personal protective equipment. South like Korea.
0: <laughs> I mean, look at South Korea. They they had testing readily available within
2: weeks. Yeah. Now, they've had to deal with being neighbors to China and all the viruses that have come out of China, SARS and things like that. You know, they're more sensitive to it. So I'm not really blaming necessarily uh, Policy makers for our somewhat slower reaction, but I am definitely blaming the FDA and the CDC for having these just incredibly silly bureaucratic hurdles uh, where you can't uh, you can't start producing new equipment without getting uh, some bureaucrat to check you know, five boxes on a form. Uh, you can't unveil a test without some lengthy, complicated uh, uh, FDA uh, procedure for approval. I mean, in a normal environment, that kind of regulatory burden is a hassle. It's like uh you know driving over a bumpy curving road when you'd rather just drive on a straight line to get to a certain destination but but it's not a deadly thing. Well, when you're dealing with something like a coronavirus, the impact of these government rules w- People presumably are dying because the government's regulations are so inane and so senseless. These bureaucrats, these bureaucracies, don't want to give up control. That uh, they think that somehow they're all knowing and all, and they should be all powerful in this field. And in reality, the lesson, one of the lessons we should be learning, is that okay, if the government wants to say these are the the quality standards you have to meet for a protective mask, fine. Put those quality standards on a website and say, if we catch you making masks that don't meet these standards, we're going to throw your CEO in jail. Okay, let's do that. That's a reasonable compromise. But don't have it where you can't actually start producing the mask until some some bureaucrat, you know, six weeks later can swing by your factory uh, and then pick up some masks and take them back to Washington for then a six-week trial period. <laughs> you can literally kill people with that kind of senseless, check-the-box bureaucratic approach. The, the argument that has been trust the
0: experts and, and I've been going crazy because I hear this this parroted quite a bit throughout not only the media, but also from people by and large in, in everyday life. It's saying trust the experts, trust the experts. And then I ask the question, well, which experts? And then there's silence because when that question gets asked, all of a sudden now it's it's putting the the onus on the argument the onus on on the the people who are actually the quote unquote experts to make a rational logical substantive position and in many cases where they have a differing of opinion to then, in the court of public opinion, battle it out to find out what's going to be the best solution. And I feel that we've gotten to a point as a society where we, as a public, have so abdicated our personal responsibility to trusting the experts that we now look at these experts who've been put in front of us and have been labeled experts by name, institution here that's been put in place by government, and now we're we're giving these people more and more um, credibility. Where I would dare say, a lot of times. They,
2: at the very least, don't deserve it. So regarding the experts, you're exactly right. Who's experts? Uh, When you talk about something like uh, climate change, there are lots of experts out there. But they tend to be people who are getting fat and happy with government grants because it pays to be an alarmist on these issues. Now, does that mean they're wrong? I have no idea. I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but I do know enough about public choice economics and the perverse incentives that you get when people's livelihood depends on saying X, even if they really think Y, it makes me very, very suspicious. But but let's even let's even set that aside and assume that people have nothing but pure motives. Everyone who's an expert on a certain topic is vulnerable to having tunnel vision.
0: The experts, as they have been labeled, um, they need to take that into consideration. But also, I think that they need to have that as a little bit of egg on their face because those are the experts who have been put into positions of power within our bureaucratic system of government. And they have not had to really answer for, you know, their, their beliefs or, um, you know, what their, their expertise are until now they're being pushed to the forefront of a national issue, a global issue, because now you know it, it's it's rubber hitting the road. It's like okay, you're the experts, fix it, <laughs> and and they're all kind of like uh oh, like now we're at the point where we're getting called in our bluff, and we gotta show the cards. And the reality is we have all twos, and I'm sorry, you're not gonna win the game that way. And I think now they're at that point. They're just trying to like save face until they get to the point that either a this kind of just starts to fizzle out on its own, much like what happened in 1918, nineteen uh, 1970, 1918, um, or we find a vaccine, which. Fingers crossed could happen sooner rather than later, and and I know that there's a lot of companies who are working on that, Um, but we really need to see something happen. But right now, those experts, again, are the ones who are standing in the way.
2: They are. They are standing in the way, and one of the things that I hope comes out of this whole exercise is that instead of just giving the FDA and the CDC a big budget increase, which is the normal let's reward failure approach that you get in Washington, I'm hoping, desperately hoping – that maybe somehow even some of the more statist-oriented members of Congress will say, you know what, People died because we had too much bureaucracy. Uh, Let's try to streamline this process. Let's shift to underwriters laboratory or or even if it's just that middle of the road approach, I said, where the FDA and the CDC put up guidelines on the Internet and say, okay, anyone who can meet these guidelines can produce X, Y and Z. And we're not going to try to require pre-approval ahead of time. There are all sorts of things we can do to either marginally or significantly make our system more flexible, more adaptable to dealing with this kind of crisis. A lot of the people who are libertarian-minded are citing Sweden, but at least in the short run, it appears that's a costly strategy with higher infection rates and death rates than some of the neighboring uh, Scandinavian countries. However, uh, it could be that in the long run, Sweden comes out ahead because, yes, they bit the bullet, they incurred higher infection rates and death rates in the short run, uh, but it enabled them to keep their economy a little bit more alive uh, and to get through the, to have the, in effect, the, the disease burn through the economy quicker. now. It could be that maybe we learned that Sweden made the wrong calculation, but I'm glad that there are different approaches out there by uh, different countries so that we can hopefully learn from that experience as well. I mean, obviously, we mentioned the East Asian economies before. Hopefully, one thing we learn is that it's so important to have the capacity to test and to provide personal protective equipment. Uh, And the East Asian economies, I think, have done a good job on that. We can certainly, even already at this stage, we can take that as a lesson to be learned, but there are probably gonna be other lessons that we're gonna learn by seeing how different countries have handled it. Above and beyond, of course, as you indicated, the biggest lesson of all is that it helps to be a rich country. (laughs) And of course, how do you become a rich country? By having free markets and limited government
0: at least from a federalist approach, we were seeing localities respond to the COVID uh, COVID-19 pandemic coming to America and and they were doing it in in kind of this way that the Eastern Asian countries have, and and that we were seeing in Europe, where each individual state or each individual locality or municipality were making decisions. I mean, I in Philadelphia, we were closed down. I, I would say the, the day after the NBA canceled their season, I mean, we we were ready to rock and roll, you know, in in quarantine a month you know uh, ago, and and we're we're seeing our numbers kind of you know stay pretty stagnant. All things considered, um, you know, we we quote unquote helped um, you know was it cut the curve or or spread the curve whatever the heck it was um we did that and that was that was great to see here in Philadelphia but also we saw a response in the free market the the free market was answering a lot of the the questions that that governments were starting to question themselves I mean the NBA closing down you know their entire season NHL suspending all um uh their NHL ho- uh, playoff hockeys you had the NCAA cancel all of March Madness and this was all in in uh, preventative uh, means from the free market, from the private sector, to to answer the areas where government was dropping the ball, or in many cases where government wasn't even responding. I mean, we had Mayor Bill de Blasio sitting in New York City and telling people tell people to go see Broadway shows uh, on the third of March, and, and this is just weeks before New York City is hit with the the biggest pandemic that's ever hit the city.
2: I'll close up with where I started. There are still things we don't know. And I don't want to pretend to be uh uh you know it's bad enough when you get 2020 hindsight uh armchair quarterback types. Uh well, we're still dealing with things where we don't know. Uh all we can do is just hope and pray that we come out of this uh with as little damage to our country and to our economy and to our to our families as possible. And and that's gonna mean striking the correct balance letting markets perhaps play a bigger role than federal bureaucrats and politicians and regulators uh and otherwise just hope for the best.
0: Awesome. Well, listen Dan, it was an absolute pleasure and uh definitely we'll be sure to uh be keeping an eye on how things transpire and uh, as we, you know, looking back months ahead from now, we'll make sure we have you back in the show and we'll do a uh, a postmortem of this conversation and see where things stand and hey, maybe we'll be proven
2: right, who knows. Let's keep our fingers crossed we have some good news. We did it! We went another week in the lockdowns
0: where I think it's done. Uh, Yeah, I think think the lockdowns are done. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. I'm looking around and it just kind of feels like everybody's like, yeah, we're kind of over this, the whole thing. I mean, so I was driving to the office today. I, I was like, oh, there's significantly more cars on the road this morning than there was this time last week and I know for a fact that the week prior there was almost no cars on the road so I think I think the lockdowns are done uh, whether people like it or not I actually just saw a, a phenomenal video on Twitter of a guy in Las Vegas um, because of course the slot machines are open Vegas is open and uh, the guy he has a uh, an n95 mask on and he lights a cigarette and he put the cigarette he slips it in behind the mask and he, he leaves it there and he breathes in through the mask and he actually inhales his cigarette smoke through the side of the mask. If that is not emblematic of how awesome America is, I don't know what is. When we look at the lockdowns, and yes, I started out the show today with a little bit of a jest at the lockdowns, but how truly the lockdowns did actually kill George Floyd. How, not only that, but how George Floyd, COVID-19, the lockdowns, and how the Prime Act, how they're all related. They all are connected. And I think it's important today to have Matt Kibbe on the show to show you exactly how
1: that is. The the challenge today, and, and maybe it's an opportunity, but in some ways this is the least libertarian year of my life. Um, you know, we're passing uh, trillions and trillions of dollars in spending um, my mayor in Washington, D.C. I didn't even know what her name was, but she apparently has... <laughs> The authority to tell me that I can't leave my house unless I'm on essential business, and and at first I was just like, "How is this even possible? Is this some sort of weird episode of Star Trek or something?" Right. Um, but you know, you obviously we we all know, um, you know big state governors like uh, Cuomo in New York and wow. the governor of California and others have have taken this this dra- draconian approach of of locking everything down and and. I think that's part of where this tinderbox came from. Well, I know it is. I, mm-hmm. you know, forty million people out of work, and you know, all of all of the experts and and blue check opinion makers and and the political class and and the bureaucrats, uh, they got their jobs. They're getting paid even if they're not going to work, and they probably can't put themselves in the shoes of people that live paycheck to paycheck. The shoes of people who are actually trying and wanting and, and sort of thriving off of, of being able to go to work. Mm-hmm. This is a government manufactured disaster. It's a man-made disaster.
0: I'm nervous because you're going to see a lot of people out there who were, were touting trust the experts, trust the experts, trust the experts. And now people are going to be told to trust the experts, and they're not going to, um, especially in times when they, they most certainly should listen to experts. But it's almost like this uh, boy who cried wolf mentality. It's very negligent of the mainstream media to completely ignore how George Floyd's death and the COVID-19 lockdowns are related. So I'll set the stage there. Can you walk us through, start to finish, how um, really we get from point A to point Z in this this just absolutely wild and often very frustrating entangling web of just government messing things up across the board?
1: You had uh, the governor of Minnesota um, deciding arbitrarily based on the science, primarily from the CDC, the World Health Organization, um, these econometric models that uh, from the Imperial College and now turn out to be wildly speculative and flawed, um, that they could somehow re-engineer human behavior um, to, to manage the spread of a virus. And I, at the time, in, in mid-March, I didn't actually have to know uh, much more about the virus than any of us knew at the time, because I knew that what government typically does in these situations actually exacerbates the problem. Uh, because a market is a mutual support system. A market is the process by which people living in a radically uncertain world, they, they know what happened yesterday, but none of us know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And this is the entire basis of, of Hayek's critique of socialism. If you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, you need this this, brought, this process of people figuring stuff out in order to mitigate risk, in order to manage un- a radical uncertainty. And if it's a global pandemic, you're talking about as uncertain as as it is possible. And what happened is the the, the, the government uh, dictators took it over. And they're like, I know better. I know everything. Um, you listen to Cuomo and he, he would say stuff like that. Um, and I take responsibility and he started making decisions that he thought were the right decision, such as hurting recovering COVID patients in the nursing home. Um, you're going to you're going to break this mutual support system that that keeps us healthy. And and maybe it's less devastating in the United States, but you could look at places like India right now, where people are 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 starving to death, and and understand that the arrogance of government planning kills people. Government kills people. Mm-hmm.
0: It does. Well, we we fast forward to where um, George Floyd ended up losing his job during the lockdowns. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, during your conversation with Eric July, I believe um, he was he was a, a bouncer for a bar. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, he was a bouncer at uh, a, a bar restaurant nightclub kind of a deal.
0: So shut down with the rest of the, you know the, the other restaurants, inevitably because the government said that this was the right thing to do. So George Floyd loses his job and, and then he's caught using a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Um, and this is really what starts this entire uh, altercation with law enforcement. And I mean, I, I forget who it was. Actually, no, who it was? It was a um, former LP candidate, Sam Robb. He, um, he had a really great tweet and it was basically summarized. We need to remember that every single law at the end of the day is enforced either at the end of the gun, or in this case, at the end of a, an officer's knee, um, and and how how just absolutely horrifying was it to watch on video for, I believe the video, Matt, was what, nine minutes or so of um, the officer, who, I'm not even going to say his name, because his name's not worth it, um, but literally with his knee on George Floyd's neck for a solid nine or so minutes, and as George Floyd, I can't breathe, I can't breathe until, you know, his words stop, because he, he, he passed, and people watch that, and I mean, what more of an example do we need not only just as as libertarians but just got as people like this isn't right number one but number two this is the inevitable outcome of when we give government so much power because we've we've delegated and also we've relegated so much responsibility away from ourselves into the hands of these you know these faceless bureaucrats and i mean look at what the the officer did he is the inevitable outcome of a system that answers to faceless bureaucrats
1: yeah. And, and, and by the way, making all this voluntary activity illegal, starting with the drug war. But there's there's a zillion laws that, that the police have to enforce. They have to erase. They have to arrest moms um, violating um, um, COVID shelter in place rules when they're playing with their daughter on playgrounds. They're, right. they're in this impossible position. And all of that is the systemic part that results in in very clear racial disparities in outcomes of the enforcement of justice. So that that to me is is the the window of opportunity for libertarians to point out to um, people that are worried about about racial justice that it is the power of government that weaponizes racism
0: because there are so many laws out there that. It does inhibit us from, you know, having the ability to to live a truly free life, and honestly, to engage in just peaceful interactions with one another.
1: Big corporations love regulation because, and they'll they'll actually grow regulation because it prevents um, small competitors from breaking into the marketplace, and that that is exactly what's going on with meat processing in America. It's super centralized. Two of the biggest uh, meat processors are actually owned by the countries of uh, China. And turkey, which is is sort of fascinating to discover, in an era when 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 meat production is breaking down because of the, of the lockdowns, and and what Massey's bill does is he basically says, um, and it's not, I mean, a hardcore libertarian solution would be we don't need these regulations because local people are not going to sell bad meat to their neighbors, and there's right. actually no data. Showing that that's ever been a problem. It's it's legal to give a hamburger to your neighbor, but it's not legal to sell them one. And <laughs> all of the all of the tainted meat in the United States comes from these massive, highly regulated uh, meat processors. So so what he wants is is decentralization, um, and and he'd, he'd love to sort of uh, lift some of that burden on on local guys. And it's it's particularly important right now because um, we have a uh, a fairly big disruption in the food chains because of the lockdowns. But but his point is this was a problem before COVID, this was a problem before lockdowns, mm-hmm. um, had a very centralized, uh, rickety, um, fragile system.
0: I'm gonna say right now that in America, the lockdowns may have been the government's worst mistake because it only brought into focus just exactly how many things the government was doing that actually caused more problems this is just exemplifying all the issues and it's starting to magnify specifically on areas that the government is actually the ones causing a lot of these problems and i'm i'm a cautiously optimistic that people are starting to wake up to that
1: um, i am i'm am on everything i've i've been locked down based on government demands for 3 months so i've been spending way too much time on twitter <laughs> um facebook uh, free the people, all of these things, Instagram. I love Instagram because it's, uh, it's, it's not quite as toxic as some of these other platforms, but, but, but we do everything. And, uh, if, if you really want to check out the work that we've been doing in terms of video production and storytelling, go to freethepeople.org. It's essentially a channel. Um, right now it's, uh, it's like HBO Go, but without the billions of dollars of financing and without the the sort of uh, uh, one size fits all, <laughs> perfectly correct left wing slant. Um, and you can see you can see the Massey documentary there, um, off the grid with Thomas Massey. And this week, and I'll, I'll give one final plug if I got just one second. Go for it. We decided to release our first feature length documentary. That's entitled, How to Love Your Enemy, A Restorative Justice Story.
0: You head over and share the episode uh, to this great documentary, How to Love Your Enemy, A Restorative Justice Story. I will include that link in the show notes. That's the homework for the audience this week. Share today's episode and share How to Love Your Enemy. Matt Kibbe, Free the People. Thank you so much for joining The Brian Nichols Show. Always a blast.
1: Thanks, Brian. It's awesome.
0: Returning here on the Brian Nichols Show, Jeffrey joins to discuss why he, in his words, the lockdowns were not only brutal, but in fact, evil. Right now, we're sitting here, uh, what, seven months removed from the start of what was Uh, an unprecedented literally shutting down of an entire economy in the United States uh, due to the COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions. And you are the author of a brand new book available over on Amazon is Lockdown or Liberty. Um, And I am a huge fan. I I definitely, uh, I'm sorry, Liberty or Lockdown may get that right. And uh, I wanted to have you on because right now I think that is the argument, right? Is it going to be a chance for us to have um, you know, a real conversation about the impacts of the lockdown. One of the points you make in the book, they're not scientific at all, um, and and in fact they're they're quite anti scientific. So let's kind of start here, Jeffrey.
3: And but the last seven months have not been fun. Um, but what's what's interesting is that it turns out I've also been thinking about pandemics and and their relationship to human liberty for about fifteen years. So I've been writing about this topic for about fifteen years and. It was striking to me is that this issue of like economics and public health, and per- particularly with the technical uh, problem of what do you do with when a pathogen arrives, is is something that libertarians, for the most part, don't think about, and and they haven't thought about it. And this is why I think the the, the libertarian so called uh, community has been embarrassingly silent, uh, disgracefully so. Uh, um, a lot of authentic science that my mother knew, but apparently nobody live today understands it other than a few, since about early January. And my my first blast on the issue was uh, January 27th because I knew for sure that the CDC had the power to, to quarantine, really shut down schools, shut down businesses. I knew they had the power. I didn't believe they would use it, but I knew they had it. And so I, I had a sense that it might be coming. Well, another way to put it is that I was scandalized that the power exists. And so I wrote about it uh, January 27th is my first big article on the COVID-19. And um, I didn't actually believe it was going to be deployed, but I was warning people that we shouldn't live in a world in which government claims that they can do this, right? I mean, that was basically what I said. And Mm -hmm. then I I concluded the article by saying, look, society can manage disease. We live amidst pathogens. Uh, We always have Uh, for as long as human life has existed. We've, so too have viruses in a, in a kind of a dangerous ballet. And we've figured it out. Our our immune systems have figured it out and we figured it out. We we know how to deal with this stuff.
0: Government mandate or not, I'm kind of done with the lockdown and I think my community is done with it too. You're,
3: you're, whoever happens to be holding office that moment becomes a health expert and is gonna protect you from disease at the expense of your human rights and your dignity and your freedom. <coughs> Yeah, that's why you start digging through the doors. Where did I leave that gun? I'm telling you, it's evil. What they did to us is evil, and and uh, there's no excuse for it. Um, and, and it did nothing, nothing, not a single life saved, not one. I mean, there's not any evidence that anybody's lives were saved. In fact, government intervention did exactly the opposite. Um, Cuomo and these the other governors in the Northeast, in particular, it didn't happen in the South anywhere else, but. In the Northeast, they shoved COVID-19 patients into long-term care facilities. In Connecticut alone, 80% of the deaths were from long-term care facilities. Typical, um, 82 is the average age of death. 80% were long-term care facilities. So, um, this is a scandal for the ages. Uh, governments, governments intervention actually slaughtered people unnecessarily. The hospitals in this country were completely emptied out to make room for COVID patients that never arrived. And so who didn't get served? Well, for three months in this country, we lived without dentistry. How about that? How about that for the 12th century? This actually happened. We'd abolished dentistry for three to four months. Cancer screenings, nil. Vaccinations, gone with children, or at least massively diminished. I mean, we're, we're going to see a return of, of polio, measles, smallpox. It's all coming back because of these, these, these monsters, these sadistic monsters and what they did to us. And, um, and, and, and pe- pe- people, you, you want to call a surgery elective. All right. Is, is breast cancer <coughs> treatments, is cancer treatment elective? Yes. You know why? Because it's not life and death. So, so under government plans, you couldn't even uh, get into the hospital if you didn't if you didn't have COVID nineteen. I mean, so wild. this is a failure of central planning, a scandal uh, for the ages, and everything that happens when you rob people of dignity and freedom, um, you take away all meaning in life. You turn out the lights on the purpose of life, and that's what states. All over the world have done over the last eight months. There should be no forgiveness, um, and there should be a strong lesson. Never again, never again. Let these people do get away with what they did. To the
0: contrary, you're actually. We we now have. You know, verifiable you know, data. We can look back, empirical empirical data that states that we actually more people have now officially passed away as a result of the lockdowns, not just because you know this arbitrary. You know, we're going to save lives because we're putting the lockdowns in place. No, no, nay, we've actually done more harm than good. And actually, it's funny. I had Dan Mitchell on the show back in March, and we made this exact uh, argument at the at onset nice. the the economic impact of what was going to happen. I think right now the number I just saw from um, actually of all organizations, the AP, it was uh, ten thousand children um dying per month right now due to starvation across the world 10,000 per month that's horrifying and yet it's it's a natural consequence of a just a, again a central planning top down decision making process that completely disrupted supply chains completely disrupted food uh, food chains and it now we're we're starting to see the long term ramifications of this and it's it's sadly Jeffrey it's impacting real people and it's it's ending with people's lives
3: problem is when you want to violate my rights um, then that's it's a, it's a serious issue and when you have a government apparatus there that's willing to do the uh, the, the bidding of of the tyrants which is essentially what happened and um, I get that the politicians were scared uh, because they were, you as you say it was a new virus but you know what's interesting did you know this that every every virus is a new virus every new virus is a new virus you know because <laughs> it so works there's nothing new about a new virus. You know, it's just utterly ridiculous. Uh, there wasn't anything novel about a novel virus. The, every virus is, is is new. and and, But we have modern medicine, and we've known since the early, first of all, we've known since 1918 that quarantining and, and compulsion doesn't work to mitigate disease. We've known that. Public health officials since 1918 have decried the evils of, of lockdowns and, and quarantines. We've known since something like the early 1930s about this very interesting um, medical phenomenon, or you could call it, call it mathematical, called herd immunity. We know, we know that um, immunity comes from di- very different sources. In the pharmaceutical definition, herd immunity achieves it at 70%. But once you add cross immunities and, 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 and T-cells and everything else, you know, you can drive that herd immunity level down to to, to 10% or or even uh, lower, which seems to be the case with this uh, coronavirus, Uh, contrary to the World Health Organization's uh, announcement yesterday. Uh, Well,
0: you know, uh, it's funny. My wife and I just finished uh, a Harry Potter binge, and there's one quote from the one and only Albus Dumbledore, and he goes, there is going to come a time where we must decide between what is easy and what is right. And I think right now, Thank goodness we have folks, um, you know, leading the charge like like yourself, uh, as well as as those three very brave doctors for the Barrington Declaration, because we need people to say what is right. Because right now there's too many people out there, and this is one thing I think is driving folks crazy you look at people like Andrew Cuomo who will say we you know we we handled the the coronavirus great and he's standing on a pile of 30 plus thousand bodies behind him but that being said uh, Jeffrey Tucker where can folks go ahead and follow you cuz obviously there's so much that's going to be coming out here over the next few months and with sure. the election less than a month away it's going to be going really intense
3: my twitter feed's become wildly active so yeah Jeffrey A Tucker um and um yeah picked up a lot of followers over the last uh, several weeks um, my, my book is liberty or lockdown it's got some very interesting i think historical details about um previous uh experiences with pandemics and how a free society deals with them you know not through lockdowns but through disease mitigation relationships between patients and doctors and that sort of thing so anyway it's i, th- I think it's a It's written in a white heat. It's a little, how should I say, different from my previous books, right? But but It's a little different than
0: Bourbon for Breakfast. Just a little different. Yeah,
3: it's not Bourbon for Breakfast. Not Bourbon for Breakfast, yeah. (laughs) But thanks so, so much, Ryan, for having me on. It's nice to see you again.
0: One of the things that we've been able to uh, come to discover is that these lockdowns, my goodness, they are really hurting a lot of really good people. And uh, today's guest is Nick Hudson from Panda. And Panda is an organization focusing on the real data and focusing on, yes, the economic data and the implications of these lockdowns across the board. And I I want Nick on the show today to discuss exactly the ramifications of uh, these these lockdowns, both in the short term, but also long term and, and really providing some much needed information and information that I think honestly is not out there uh, for folks to know exactly what's happening.
4: We were quite alarmed by the emerging trend to lock down and enforce all these draconian non-pharmaceutical interventions. We were very concerned that they might be taken up in developing countries such as South Africa because such countries typically have large swathes of their population occupying a run-in society that is only just above poverty. And so any kind of intervention that has a big impact on the economy stands to force people by the hundreds of millions into poverty. And anybody with half a grain of common sense will realize that that kind of move has public health implications all of its own. We came to the conclusion that even utilizing the most conservative projections for the uh, epidemic, by which I mean the, the most severe predictions, there was no chance that the epidemic would, would um, kill nearly as many people as the economic event. In fact, we said that it would be at least time 30 times the loss of life would arise from the economic impact than from the disease itself.
0: Wow. Okay. So much to unpack there, right? So the first one that, that instantly um, you know, makes me start to question is why are people going this whole
4: mentality of trust the experts? So this whole business of uh, follow the science, trust the experts, what, it, what that really is is code for a certain kind of authoritarian adherence to a narrative. It's what I call the bogus narrative of COVID, which, simply put, is there's a deadly new virus. Um, we're all susceptible to it, and unless we lock down and wear our masks, we're all going to die. Then the actual expectation of general lockdowns is that they will cause the disease burden to shift onto the vulnerable, and they will actually cause higher mortality than doing nothing. And that is when I say basic epidemiology—that is undergraduate epidemiology—a well-known result. And as soon as you introduce Age-specific mortality rates into your model, out pops that result. You hit a you 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 do a general lockdown, more people die. Lockdowns, the way I see them, are the most regressive policy that has ever been introduced. Um, the the what you're doing with a lockdown is protecting people who are not really at risk, who are very comfortably off, who can sit behind their little Zoom screens and work from home comfortably. That is not how the bulk of the world lives. And so you're transferring the disease burden, which is very slight for you, onto populations for whom it is very severe. And that is one of the most selfish acts a human being could do. And so I I look with some head scratching at the people on the left who advocate for lockdowns because it's... If you are worried about inequality, if, you, if, if that has been your mantra for decades, then you should absolutely hate lockdowns. They increase inequality like nothing else. We will see, as you say, starvation in huge numbers as a result of these consequences of lockdown. Lockdowns, the way I see them, are the most regressive policy that has ever been introduced. Um, the, the, what you're doing with the lockdown is protecting people who are not really at risk, who are very comfortably off, who can sit behind their little zoom screens and work from home comfortably. That is not how the bulk of the world lives. And so you're transferring the disease burden, which is very slight for you onto populations for whom it is very severe. And that is one of the most selfish acts a human being could do. And so I I look with some head scratching at the people on the left who advocate for lockdowns, because it's, if you are worried about inequality, if you, if, if that has been your mantra for decades, then you should absolutely hate lockdowns. They increase inequality like nothing else. We will see, as you say, starvation in huge numbers as a result of these consequences of lockdown. I wish there was a conspiracy because it would be far easier to understand and to uh, manage against than what we're dealing with, which is, first of all, the consequence of a terrible degree of centralization. Way too much power has landed up in the hands of far too few individuals and they're riding, riding roughshod over parliaments, over constitutions, over law, under the cover of the supposed deadly virus. And many of these parties have strong economic incentives. They also have delusions of grandeur and a kind of egomaniacal approach to the setting and the situation. They believe that they know what is good for the rest of the world and that the pain that they're distributing is going to be worth it in the long run and I think that that is a fundamental institutional failing nobody should have as much power as these people have so I look at the incentives I look at the alignment of commonality of interest um, between these big players and I don't see in it conspiracy I see in it abuse of power Well, people definitely need to start speaking out, standing up, rising up. I would like to see a mass burning of mosques. I would like to see people raising their voices, challenging their politicians. I would like to see the media finally start to wake up to the incredible damage that is being done to the people they're meant to protect against the powerful. They have sided with the powerful against the vulnerable, against the poor. Against all the marginalized groups. And that needs to change. And I think there's a difficulty there because those same powerful people who have been directing this foolish healthcare policy also have their tentacles into the ownership of media. There's an unholy alliance between big tech, between the supernational organizations and media and politicians. There's much corruption behind all of these scientists who are maintaining the bogus narrative. Is funding from organizations who are pulling the strings and none of that is conspiracy it's all out in the open and it's a big problem and until people stand up and until they start making their voices here heard we are not gonna be able to get traction on the pushback the economic recovery will take many years we may even have to measure it in decades at the rate things are going because the hole just gets dug deeper and deeper um, but at least in terms of arresting the policy, <clears throat> I would I would think that we need to do this within months. There are many very dystopian things on the horizon. All of these immunity passports, health passports. I see now New York has uh, made some modification to law to make it legal for a workplace to demand that its employees become vaccinated. I think that kind of Law needs to be attacked as unconstitutional. Um, so we need to form grassroots organizations, collectives of lawyers and doctors who are prepared to do the hard work of pushing back against this insane kind of idea. So that's kind of where it's at. We've also got uh, quite a, a business going in connecting the various organizations around the world who are pushing back against the Malaki, uh, doctors, groups, legal groups, um, and of course the scientists. And so we are gradually roping together organizations around the whole world. Uh, in the last few days, I've spoken to people in New Zealand, in England, in the United States, in South America, got a conversation coming up with the Philippines. So we really are working very hard to try and combine these groups so that we're not replicating work, that we can leverage off each other's work. We're supporting legal cases. We join them as amicus curiae or friends of the court. We support petitions to local parliaments and European parliament with content. And that content then comes with the imprimatur of the scientific advisory board and we produce very impressive founding affidavits for cases and supporting material for lawyers who are trying to take on people in their own jurisdictions. And because our, our data is fully international, it doesn't concentrate on South Africa, it covers the entire world, we are able to assist in a variety of jurisdictions.
0: So Nick, where can folks go ahead and support all the great work you're doing at Panda?
4: Our website is www.pandata.org there's a donate button right there and we deeply appreciate any donations we can get because what we are ultimately mounting is a costly public relations exercise and there is a need for that to be supported by quite a lot of resources uh, mainly in terms of organizing and and um, uh, publishing uh, work and so that would be very much appreciated. Um, we also have social media accounts. The two that I'll mention here now are uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, where our handles are identical, Pandata19, 19. Pandata19. 19. So the organization's name is Panda. The website is Pandata.org. So Nick, thank you so much for you and all the work that your team at Panda are doing, Pandata.org.
0: I'll include the link in the show notes. Nick Hudson, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. When we're talking about living a truly free and independent life, we mean it. And that's exactly what Gary Collins, who is the creator of The Simple Life, set out to accomplish. And now you have a chance to learn all the secrets that Gary has developed over decades of trying it out himself, building these amazing courses, as you can go to thesimplelifenow.com and access three amazing courses, one being the the off-the-grid master course, two being the How to Finance Your Off Grid Home Course and three How to Find Your Dream Off Grid Property Course and get an awesome 10% off at checkout by using code TBNS10. That's right, you too can learn how to live a truly free and independent lifestyle by living off grid. And all these amazing courses are delivered to you by Yes One Gary Collins from the TheSimpleLifeNow.com. Use code TBNS10 at checkout for 10% off your order and start living your free life today. All right, folks, thank you for joining us here on that phenomenal episode with those four amazing, amazing individuals. Thank you to the great Dan Mitchell, Matt Kibbe, Jeffrey Tucker, and Nick Hudson for joining the Brian Nichols show over the past year and fighting the good fight, raising up the awareness, the numbers, and really, it's the canary in the coal mine. We knew it was happening, we knew what to expect, and we were there the entire time. And now, I hate to be, you know, the, the folks out there that were going, we told you so. But right now, it's important for us to make sure we're setting the record straight. No, the government lockdowns were not the only options out there. And actually, there were a lot of people who were raising the alarms from the very beginning. Um, and it's important that we not only are are setting that record straight, but making sure that we do not ever ever let this happen again so uh, with that being said folks thank you for joining us here on this special episode of the Brian Nichols show as always if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to go ahead and share and go ahead and tag me at bnichols liberty you can follow me on twitter facebook minds.com and par- parlor.com jeepers creepers it's been a long day folks and if you enjoyed today's ep- uh, episode particularly go ahead and shoot me an email brian at BrianNicholsShow.com. And if you really, really liked today's episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. So that being said, folks, thank you so much for joining us here on today's special COVID-19 one-year anniversary of our 15 days to slow the spread. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols
1: Show. Find more episodes at BrianNicholsShow.com.
0: Audio production for The Brian Nickel Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.